I have no time for an attention-grabbing and need-building introduction. No flash today. We have three stories that give three lessons, and they're profound. They are hard lessons learned a hard way. And I say, why don't we learn these hard lessons the easy way? How about we just read the Bible and see how other people might have learned something and not have to go through what they went through? What you think about God is the single most important thing about you. And that's what we're going to look at today is the way people think about God. And we're going to see whether we think right or wrong accordingly. We're going to watch and learn. Now, before we get to the passage itself, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 4 in the Old Testament. But let me give you some context and review because it's important to understand the bigger meaning here. Uh, we're looking, we're studying Sam, the Samuel books together in this fall, and it is what's called a hinge of history. In other words, after this epoch of time, the world will be forever changed because the book of Samuel is about the birth of the nation of Israel. The book of Samuel is about the birth of the nation of Israel. And we saw last week in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, it has a dreadful beginning. And it has a dreadful beginning. We can know that because in a typological way, the person leading the spiritual development of, of Israel is a man named Eli. Eli is an older man. He's actually technically, he's retired and has turned over the sacred and most holy things to his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And here's how the Bible describes those two adult males. Verse 12 says, Eli's sons were very wicked men. They had no regard for Yahweh or their duties as priests. They had contempt for God. They had contempt for the way they were supposed to be priests. And if that weren't bad enough, besides their embezzlement and racketeering, they turned the, the sacred tabernacle into their own private brothel. And so at the end of chapter 2, God's judgment is pronounced upon them. It is clear and understood by Eli. That's the first two chapters. He says, be afraid. And, and if, that, if that weren't all, then here comes that evil empire that's new on the scene, filled with pride and power, the Philistines. And they're right at the doors. They're marching towards us. Now, chapter 3, there's this, the mood has an ominous feel, but that's interrupted for just chapter 3 because they introduce this gift from God, this miracle baby, and his name is Samuel. And, and he will be the future and the hope, and he'll hear God's voice, and he'll lead uh, Israel to the place they were meant to be. And then chapter 4 through 6 that we're going to study, there's not a single mention of Samuel by name. And that, should, that says, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> we, we ended last week, it's spellbinding, right? It was a cliffhanger. And the question was, could it get any worse? And the answer today is, Oh, yes, it can get a lot worse. What happens is the Philistines have now crossed the border. They have arrived, and this is the descent into Israel's darkness and despair. Their first combat, uh, uh, like war situation that they have, the Philistines and the Israelis, it's brief, 
doesn't take long, and 4,000 foot soldiers of Israel have, been, have, are perish, have perished. And this is, the, this is the conclusion the leadership comes to. Chapter 4, verse 3 says, When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring this defeat to us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the, Lord of Co- the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that we may go, it may, he may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. The loss is bad, but this thinking, their response, is frightening. For you to understand the the depth of their reasoning, we have to understand two things. One, the way they're thinking and what they're thinking about. The way they're thinking is like pagans. And when you and I, modern expression of the word pagan, we uh, make that sound like a person's an atheist. Oh, he's a pagan. He doesn't believe in God. No, no. This is real paganism believes in God or many gods. But it's a formulaic way of believing in these deities so that you, you can control the deity. In other words, you, get, you use that deity to get what you want. And so you learn the chants and the sacrifices and the incantations. And then when, if you get those right, you get what you want. That was, here's the word, oblige. That deity is obliged to you at that point. So in graphic terms, you've probably seen where if we just throw a virgin in the volcano once a year, then, you know, the harvest will come in and, and, and it's all good. We bring that into our own lives when we say, well, you know, I started the day with this amount of prayer, so probably God owes me a pretty good day. And I'm going to be disappointed if it doesn't happen. I think that this idea of a pagan view of God where he's obliged to us, I think this is the darkest bent that comes with our broken soul. I believe that at, at conception, we're, we're born broken, and the darkest expression of that brokenness is, is this value that we can take what he says is sacred and use it to oblige him. So, in this passage, it says, why did the Lord cause this loss? I mean, we did our stuff. Why didn't he do his stuff? And so what, I'm, I, there's a lot of times, I've heard it many times, how come my kids didn't turn out? I made them memorize all these verses. I did my part, so the deity... So paganism is the belief, uh, an aspect of it is, is God is a genie. And you rub the lamp, if you, do, if you rub the lamp just right, he's going to appear, and then he's going to grant you at least one wish, that's for sure. And so that's part one, is the, is the value or the view of God like a pagan. The second one is what they're, what they're bringing into this equation. We're talking about the ark of the Lord. Thirty-six times in these three chapters, and when you read it, you'll be like, stop already, because it's the point of emphasis. Thirty-six times it's going to say, the ark of the Lord of the covenant, or the, the ark of God Almighty. It never says the ark, because it's a talk about whose ark it is. This is the most holy thing in the Old Testament, this, this is a different kind of, of religious artifact. This is the spiritual representation of God's presence on earth. You don't use it. You, you, put it, you put it somewhere inside the tabernacle, later the temple, and if you, if you want to be near it, you go to it. You don't take it to you. This is the presence of God, God Almighty, the Most High God. 
And so it is not a rabbit's foot. It's, it's not a genie that you rub and get what you want. And if, if, that, if that value of paganism weren't bad, and then what they're projecting it upon, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, if that were bad, look who's in charge of this event. Look at verse 4 on the screens. And so the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, Yahweh Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. Okay, just so that you know, that's the right Ark we're talking about. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are known as very wicked men, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Are, are you adding this up? So we, are take, we have a pagan view, and we are taking the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh Almighty out of the sacred and holy tabernacle into a dangerous war situation led by two wicked men who have already been pronounced judged by God. What could possibly go wrong? And these Israeli soldiers walk with great confidence because they have the Ark with them into this kill box. And here's what happens, 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. This is different. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Oh, yes, it was. The Philistine army is not this good. They're making a, God's making a point. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers this time, and the ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they died. It's a, it's a terrible, it's, this, is, this is it, right? This is as bad as it gets. Oh, no. It gets worse than this. Because someone watching the war runs back to Shiloh where Eli, the father, is an old man, and he's nervously waiting on the report. And the reason he's nervous, because he knew that ark should never leave the tabernacle. And so when he finds, here's what happens. The report shows up. He says, oh, it was a terrible war. We were, it was a horrible slaughter. Your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead. And the ark of the Lord has been taken by the Philistines. And when he hears the ark's been stolen, he falls off the back of his chair, hits his head on something, and his neck is snapped, and he's dead before he hits the ground. Now we're at the bottom. This is as bad as it gets. No, no, it gets worse than this. No. Because Mrs. Phinehas is well with child. And when she finds out there was a terrible uh, defeat and her father-in-law is dead and her husband is dead, she goes into a traumatic labor. And during labor, she starts losing her life. And as the child is born, she's in and out of consciousness. And uh, the handmaiden is, is there and she says, hey, wait, wait. All is not lost. You've had a son. You know, you have a legacy. And here's how the story ends. And she named the boy Ichabod. She say. Ichabod, because the glory has departed from Israel, and that's because of the capture of the Ark of the Covenant and the death of her father-in-law and her husband, and she said, the glory has departed from Israel. The Ark of God has been captured. Ichabod means God is gone. Name this remnant of our family wickedness, name him Ichabod. God is gone. He's left. We are on our own. This is it. This is the bottom. The dying words of a birth-giving mother saying, we're done. The tabernacle is a hollow shuck. There's nothing in it. The lampstand that's there with the candles that are expressing the presence of God, blow them out. 
what do we do now? All is lost. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. And when you think about God with a pagan view of life, like you can take the sacred and use it to obligate God, it does not end well. So that's the first story. The first application would be, is there anything like the ark today? Is there anything that is sacred, set apart for a purpose, very special in the values of God, doesn't matter about our values, but God's values, that's precious to him? Is there anything you can think of that represents the physical presence of God on earth today? How about the church? The church is special. There's a universal church and then the localized expressions of that. That's precious in God's eyes. He doesn't treat that like anything else. It represents the presence of God in the world today. Would we possibly be thinking of the church like people in a, in a kind of a pagan way where we just use something that's sacred and try to use it and obligate God with it? Oh, oh yeah, we do that. We're good at that. Just rub it like a lamp. Whenever we need help, having some marriage problems, we should go to church for a while. Okay, we go to church for a while. You know, things have settled down. So like a used Band-Aid, you just kind of throw it off to the side and thanks. Maybe I'll see the church again if I ever need her. We have some children. Uh-oh, we got to get religion in these kids. Let's go to the church. Let's just use that thing that God loves so much. And, and then it's so funny. It, you can, in my, in my business, okay, you know when this happens. Anybody involved in the children's ministry and student ministry knows when this is happening. We'll say, when that person's oldest, youngest child graduates from our youth ministry, we'll never see them again. They're here to take. Thanks. Thanks for helping the kids. Uh, thanks, church. I'll be back. No, maybe. I guess we had some marriage problems, but other, other than that, see ya. Sleeping in on Sunday. It's the church. She's different. And I want a huge disclaimer. Listen to me. Listen to me. Some of you are already really mad, and some of you are confused. <laughs> if, if you're, like, just trying to figure out what Christianity is, if you're exploring God, if you're new in the faith of Christianity, I don't expect you to have this value. This, this should be very foreign to you. It's, it's mystical. Okay? These are things that are clearly communicated in the Bible, but you wouldn't know that any other way. And, and so, and even in the Bible, it throws you a bone because it says, look, when you're new in Christ, it says you have, you're a child, like a child, a newborn child. You can't even handle solid food yet. And so it's very common for people when they're young in the faith to have inappropriate evaluations of things that are precious. Just like when you're a kid and you're, you're, you're making mud pies with the family china, right? I mean, you don't know it's that valuable, but it is. And someday there'll be a day you'll figure out, whoa, I did what? You remember the time when I made a mud pie with a china? Boy, was I goofy. You were just young, okay? And so if, if you're new to the faith, if you're young to the faith, you're going to see us as a group of people. It's like, how can we help you? But listen, friends, this is not a service depot, okay? This is not a service organization. We love to help people. But this is a place that's sacred, 
that's set apart for the purpose of making the saints holy. It's not like anything else in the world. Listen to the titles associated with the, with the, with the church. It's called in the Bible, the Bride of Christ. Think about that title. The Bride of Christ, the future wife of Jesus. No one else gets that. The future wife of Jesus, that's us. So, again, think of it in a familial way. When you're young as a child, you probably looked at your mother as (laughs) someone that you could use who fed you and clothed you and took care of your room and that sort of thing, and that's fine. But when you grow up, there probably was a time when you constantly looked at your mother as your mother and you crossed a line at at a time when you should have known better and dad steps in and says, that's not your mother, that's my wife. Anyone else? I remember the day. I remember it vividly because I said something that I shouldn't have and I owed that woman respect and honor like no other woman in the world. She was not my mother. She was that man's wife. My, it was, look, hopefully you've heard something like, you know that little room you live in, that 10 by 12 thing that you think is yours? That will be my home office by noon. I swore to God to love her, and I cherish her. You're, you're optional. <laughs> and that was the day you learned that there was no other person on earth like your mom because your mom was your, was your father's wife. There's nothing like the church on earth. The clo- you can't compare it to anything else. If you do, you'll, you're going to climb up short. The closest thing that you can compare the church to is the ark of the Lord of God, the presence of God on earth. Listen to this. Jesus doesn't come back to get that really cool Christian school. He doesn't come back to get the orphanage, that really awesome orphanage. He doesn't come back for the hospitals. He comes back for his bride. He comes back for the church. And the Christian school and the orphanage and the hospital, they can serve her, but she won't serve them. The church is different. The church is sacred. And we have to change our values about something that we might think is common, but God thinks otherwise. And if you change your values, you're going to change a lot of your conduct. I see this is probably the biggest area of people that have walked with God for quite some time. They have no understanding of what's called the doctrine of ecclesiology. And they just think of this as something that's common and simple. And it's neither. It's a mystery. And it belongs to the king. So here's where I find most people get in trouble. Most common mistakes when they're looking for a church, granted, it's hard to find a church. But here's the common problems that people misunderstand because they they don't have the right values. The one is they're looking for the perfect church. They're looking for one that doesn't have problems. And I, listen, first of all, let's just talk about this. If you found the perfect church and you went there, you'd kind of wreck it, right? (laughs) Right? Come on, you know you. You'd wreck it. Okay. The second thing is just the idea of a perfect church is so absurd because it's, it's, we're a family and there's, and, and a family, so you don't look for you don't look for the perfect church. Maybe you don't even look for a good church. You look for, it's, it's, it, in ethics, it's called the lesser of evils. You look for the lesser of evil church. You look for the church that has the least amount of cringes, right? It's like, ugh, yeah, that, 
Don't, but hey, that one has less cringes than the other one. That's the first one. You know, we're like realistic, you know, stoicism standards. And the second one is you find a church to serve and to honor because this goes by design. Our souls were designed for this, and the church, by definition, is designed for this. Listen, our souls were designed to give, not receive. They were, our souls were designed to serve, not be served. Meanwhile, the church, she is the bride of Christ. She was designed to receive honor and to receive service. And, and so it, things work the way they're designed when you go to find a lesser evil church where you can serve. And so when people say stuff like, yeah, that didn't work. Yeah, I tried church for a while, but it didn't serve me. I was like, it, that's like driving a nail with an iPhone. That's not how iPhones work, and that's not how nails work. And you wonder why it didn't work? How could it possibly work? The goal is to find the best possible church and then go there and honor her and serve her. It can start early. Ray Anderson, our executive pastor, taught me this so many years ago, I can't remember. When his oldest child was in like fourth grade, and he had a few, four kids, and so they, some of them were just barely talking. Every Sunday they would come in and they'd play hide-and-seek to church. And hide-and-seek was like this. Okay, kids, today we're playing hide-and-seek at church. Remember, we're going to find someone to bless, and we're going to find a way to honor the church. Okay, you be looking. See you at lunch. At lunch, they do a debrief. Like, what happened? I helped a little girl off the slide. She got stuck, and I, I blessed her that way. You know, I passed out the Cheerios during, you know, kindergarten time. Uh, I picked up the most little communion cups than anybody else. It's like, it's not a contest, but I like your attitude. <laughs> but friends, when you walk up the courtyard, it's, it, again, it's values and mindset. When you walk in and, you, and you've changed this, the, the view of what's happening here, it'll change what you, this is not a sermon about let's get everybody busy. It's, it's looking at this saying, how did they treat the ark? How do we treat the church? If you're mentoring and discipling people and you don't include the majesty of the local church, you're, you're forgetting to talk about who Jesus Christ is engaged to marry. And when you start discipling people and bring her up, wait till you see what the future groom is going to do for you. That's the first story, and that's the first lesson. The second story has a whole different lesson. Let's pick the story up again. I think we're in chapter 5 now, and now we're at the Philistine camp. And friends, they're having a great time because the bully Philistines have beat up another scrawny kid and taken his lunch money. They are another, I don't know, inept deity is now uh, in, in their vaults, belongs to them. And by the way, there is not a single mention of Israel trying to recapture that Ark of the Covenant in this storyline. And so they have this big bonfire, the Philistines, and they're just singing and dancing around it, and they're all singing in harmony. We are the champions of the world. <laughs> they don't know what to do with the Ark of the Covenant, and they say, you know what, let's put it in our shrine our trophy case, so our God, Dagon, can look down at it. And that's when we pick up the story in chapter 5, verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen face down on the ground right in front of the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Can you, in, can you visualize what happened? Oh, yeah. Dagon was worshiping the ark of the Lord. I... I don't mean to pick on Dagon as being a weak deity, but if you need humans to help pick you back up, you know, and set you straight, I'm just saying you might want to pick a different deity. 
So they kind of put a night watch on it, and the next morning they run in to see if anything's happened. Oh, things happened all right. Verse 4 says, But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon falling down face down again on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Uh Uh-oh, his head and his hands were broken off. They were lying there on the threshold. Only his body remained. And if you don't think they knew what this, they, they knew exactly what this meant. When the Philistines would capture a, another tribe or, or city, they would take the mayor or the king and they would cut the head off and the hands off and hang the corpse on the wall. Because you take the head, that's the sovereignty of that king. And the hands were the power. And so they wanted to show the world that this nation, this king has no sovereignty. He has no power. Wait, that just happened to Dagon. And so God is standing, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is standing over them. Who's the bully now? And they realize this, friends. Somebody says, will someone stop that stupid song, we are the champions of the world? Because terror has now entered this storyline. These are the first two days, and they know death is coming. They are in way over their heads. Nine times in the next few verses, nine times the phrase, the hand of God was upon them, will be used. Because that is the power of God, and it will not have a bead of sweat on it. And while the sun goes down, and Dagon is in pieces, and the people are restless, and they know what's coming, God releases rats to do what the Israeli army couldn't do, to obliterate the Philistines and crush their pride. So that's what happens. Verse 5 and 6. The Lord's hand was heavy. There is the phrase, the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and the vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. And when the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not stay with us here because the hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. He beat up our God, now he's beating us up. So they called together the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? And they said, uh, let's send it somewhere. We have the ark of God of Israel moved to Gath. Let's it. We'll move it to Gath. And so they moved the ark of God to Gath. Let me explain something that's happening. When I was a kid growing up, um, parenting was a lot easier. You kicked your kids out in the morning, and they couldn't come back until the streetlights came on. And so me and my guys, we, we would just sit on the curb and usually come up with, what's the worst way to die? It's just what little boys do. And, uh, you know, the number one was always taken, and that was die by quicksand. We were all watching Tarzan all the time, and we just thought quicksand was everywhere, and that's how we would go. The second one was usually, again, Tarzan-related, somehow getting eaten by ants, tripping and falling and catching yourself somewhere and the ants eat you. But here's, here's the reason I bring this up. Because if one of these little guys that we used to run around together, if one of them had read the Bible, they would have picked this. Because that word tumor means uh, swelling of the growing area. It means hemorrhoids. And I think of all the ways to die... That would be the worst way to die. Ask your mom what that means later. (laughs) And so they're in a lot of pain, and then you die. 
Verse 9, and after they moved it to Gath, the Lord's hand was heavy against that city, throwing them into great panic. And he afflicted the people of that city, both the young and the old, in the outbreak of these tumors. So they sent the ark to Ekron. Well, Ekron's already heard about it. So this is where we pick up. So the ark of God was entering Ekron. The people of Ekron ran out there and said, no, 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 no. They brought the ark of God to Israel around us to kill us and all of our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of God to Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and all of our people. For death has filled this city with panic. God's hand was heavy on it. Those who did not die, those were the lucky ones, they were afflicted with these tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. I'm just going to keep reading. I'm sorry. Then chapter 6 goes in. So the ark of the Lord uh, went from the Philistines. They, it had been in the Philistine territory for seven months, and the Philistines called on the priests and the diviners. And so the politicians get the diviners, and they say, what do we do? And they say, well, we can send it back to Israel, but with a huge apology, we have to have a give them a sin offering. And so, so that's where we pick up. The Philistine said, what guilt offering should we send to them? He said, well, five golden tumors and, and, and five gold rats, according to the number of Philistine rulers, because the same plagues struck both you and your rulers. And listen, and give God, give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send Israelites out and get them out of their way? You bet they did. So let's learn from the Israelis. Let's learn from Pharaoh. Let's load this thing up with gold and send it back. So we've talked about reversal of fortune. This is the end of the second story, okay? Reversal of fortune, sitting around a bonfire singing, we are the champions of the world, and now we're dying of hemorrhoid poisoning. And we're saying, could you just give glory to the God of Israel, load the cart up with gold, and send it on its way? Just give God glory. Second application for the second story. God doesn't need us. He really does not need us. I mean, look at, look at this story. God has a plan. He's going to rule the planet. He's going to convince the entire angelic world that he has a right to rule his creation. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can pray it. It's going to happen. And so the, the kind of the question is, why does he even include us? He, he is doing with rats and fleas what the army couldn't do on their best day. So why does Israel even have to fight these Philistines? Why even get us involved with it? Could I give you a clue? This was a changing moment in my life. This is when my young son helped me mow the lawn. I got to tell you, if he hadn't shown up when he did, I'd have never got it done. I was going to mow the yard that day, and I couldn't get it done. And so this little guy wanted to spend time with me on the day where I mowed the lawn, and he came and helped. He didn't help at all, not even the least bit, but I was glad he joined me. Is that a clue why God would involve us in his will? Let me give you another one. Look at this one. This one's graphic. This is my youngest daughter helping my wife bake cookies. <laughs> Just really quick. We're running out of time. Does that look like she made it easier? 
Would it, was it faster? Was it cleaner? Did the cookies look better? And who cares about any of that? Did they taste better? Now, if you like cookies with eggshells, you're going to love what she produced that morning. <laughs> so why include her? Because Melinda was going to make cookies that day. And if that young girl wanted to spend time with her mom, it'd be in the kitchen. God lets us be involved in his will because he'd love for us to spend time with him. If you want to spend time with the Lord, you need to find out what his will is and go there. That's the way he works. We were designed, we were meant to have a relationship with God while we do things with God. That's our best times. And, and, and if you look at the pictures, he's going to do the hard stuff, and he's going to leave the easy stuff to us. The little boy was not going to try to pull start that thing. He couldn't. She was not going to get near a mixer. She could be enveloped by it. And that's the way God works with us. Look, I want you to be part of my will. You'll be doing some scary stuff, but it's not really scary. I'll do the hard stuff. You do the easy stuff. You want to hang out with God? He'd love you to be there. He doesn't need us. He wants us. And we would enjoy his presence. Story one, don't use the sacred, revere it. Story two, enjoy God's presence doing his will. Third story, very quickly. I'm sorry, we're a little bit late here. The ark ends up on an ox cart pulled by a couple cows with gold, bags of gold on it, and it ends up in Israel, the closest town possible, and it ends up in this field during harvest season. They put the ark on a big rock, and it becomes somewhat of a shrine. They have a great day of festivities because they, you know, they have these sacrifices, and everybody's starting to sing, happy days are here again. It is, it is, it is awesome. There's hope again because the ark of the Lord has returned to Israel. <sighs> it's a good story. And they lived happily ever after, and they didn't, and they didn't. Because a couple of numbskulls did what the, what the Philistines were afraid to do. They took the lid off and looked into the ark. And the temporal was never meant to gaze on the eternal. And this is what happens. I mean, you saw the Ark of the Covenant, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark. You've seen the movie. Right? Based on a true story. But God's... But God struck down the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. People mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt with them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, how can we stand in the presence of Yahweh, this holy God? Maybe you could respect who he is. Well, you think about God as the most important thing about you. And in this time... This epoch, this era, this dispensation of spiritual experience, we live in what's not a contradiction but a paradox. Never before have we been told in the Bible to call God, not Father, but Abba, Daddy. We get to call him Daddy. And when we do, we need to remember he's the great king. He is God, Yahweh Almighty. He is our good, good father, but he's majestic. It, the Bible says, listen, don't you hang your head. You lift your head up. You walk with great confidence into the throne room of grace, and you talk to that great high priest, Jesus Christ, who, who did things for you. But never be casual when you do that. 
Matthew Henry said, you can bow your knee to God, but you can't tip your hat at him. Did you learn some hard things today? What God calls sacred, we honor. We get to spend time with him if we are part of his will. And he is our good, good father and never stop being the God of the universe. Well, the theme of the whole Monarch series is this. There's two types of people in the story. There are those who stand in front and be trampled and those who get to follow behind and be led. Which one do you want to be? You know how the story ends this time? Do they live happily ever after? Do things change? Is there finally a hinge of history? Kind of need to come back next week to find out. That's how the story goes. Let's pray. Lord God, these are very heavy lessons. And I'll admit, I have had a cavalier, a casual attitude towards what you call your bride. I ask, Lord, that you would help those here that have considered what it means to be a disciple to not include the love of your life, the bride of Jesus Christ. I'd ask, Lord, that we would take responsibility, that we would confess those things, that we would change our attitude towards the church. We would love her and honor her and consider her sacred, worthy of returning to save. God, I also ask that we would enjoy finding our way in your will so that we might have an experience of presence with you. Lord, you are a great God. You are Jehovah, the King, and we love to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.